Welcome to this Aspen podcast. I am Pat Anthony, Senior Director of Organizational Growth for Aspen. We are delighted to provide this podcast as part of Aspen's Malnutrition Awareness Week, which is October 5th through 9th, 2020. As part of Malnutrition Awareness Week 2020, we are highlighting three recently published papers that address the nutrition component of the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Program, also known as ERAS. Joining me today to discuss the paper, American Society for Enhanced Recovery and Perioperative Quality Initiative Joint Consensus Statement on Nutrition Screening and Therapy Within a Surgical Enhanced Recovery Pathway are Dr. Paul Wishmeyer and Dr. David Evans. This paper was published in June of 2018 in Anesthesia and Analgesia. Also with us is Dr. Bob Martindale, who co-authored an editorial on this paper entitled Perioperative Nutrition, a High-Impact, Low-Risk, Low-Cost Intervention, which was also published in June 2018 in Anesthesia and Analgesia. Dr. Wishmeyer is Associate Vice Chair for Clinical Research, Department of Anesthesiology, and Physician Director, Duke Hospital Nutrition and TPN Service at Duke University Medical Center. And he is also the Director of Perioperative Research at Duke Clinical Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Evans is a trauma critical care surgeon at Ohio Health Trauma Services in Columbus, Ohio, and is Medical Director of the System Nutrition Support Team at Ohio Health, a 12 hospital network. He is a member of faculty at Ohio University. Dr. Martindale is Professor of General Surgery and Medical Director for Hospital Nutrition Services at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Thank you, Drs. Wishmeyers, Evans, and Martindale for agreeing to speak with us today and share your expertise. Before we start the discussion, I'd like to ask our guests if they have any disclosures on this topic that they would like to share. I do. I, I, I would disclose, um, I would call them an alignment of interest, I hope, um, that, that we have funding from a range of, of different individuals to support our, our nutrition research. And, and those include Abbott, um, work we've done with Nestle, work we've done with Nutritia, and work we've done with Muscle Sound too, uh, which is a company interested in assessing muscle mass and lean body mass in the surgical setting to improve outcomes. I have none specific to this topic. I've done speaking and consulting with Abbott Nutrition and Fresenius Kabi. Thank you. Thank you very much. So to start, I'd like to ask Dr. Wishmeyer. This is a consensus paper of the Perioperative Quality Initiative. Would you please tell us a little bit about this group, its composition, mandate, and the process of obtaining consensus? Sure. So this was, uh, I think, what, what I saw as a really exciting opportunity, I was approached a number of years ago by the evidence-based perioperative medicine society, the EB Palm Society, working with the American Society of Enhanced Recovery. And they had begun a process of doing a perioperative quality initiative to create guidelines and, and best practice initiatives that incorporated a multidisciplinary, multinational group of individuals brought together to render best practice guidelines on various topics in perioperative medicine, in this particular case, perioperative medicine. And so it was an exciting opportunity to work with the society, and I got to 
pick some of the members. They picked some of the members. Um, these members included dietitians. These members included anesthesiologists. These members included surgeons, a whole range of different disciplines and specialties from members from around the world. David was obviously one of them and, and one of my choices, actually. It was a joy to have him on the committee with me. And so it was a real opportunity to come together and discuss the evidence and have a, a really regimented way to present evidence and then great evidence based on real practicing experts in multiple fields of preoperative medicine from multiple disciplines around the world. And so there have been a number of these on a number of different topics. And this was the one where we felt there really needed to be an emphasis on how nutrition was delivered and given. Thank you. The paper proposes the use of the perioperative nutrition screen known as PONS, P-O-N-S. Why was an additional nutrition screening tool developed when there are many tools already available? And does this tool have any benefits over other screening tools such as the Aspen A&D tool, the MUST, the MST, the mini nutritional assessment? Sure. I can tell you this score was developed for this guideline process and as part of a process we were doing at Duke University where we have an RD-driven, registered dietitian-driven perioperative nutrition assessment clinic. And as part of both the POKI process and this process at Duke, we were looking for a score that would be much more specific to surgical patients and the risk factors known to exist in, in the surgical literature for malnutrition that we could combine into a electronic medical record friendly rapid screening tool that we could, I will tell you, Duke used to screen all 60,000 patients having surgery by phone and by electronic medical record for the risk of malnutrition in order to screen them to a pathway that led to them seeing an RD who then places those patients on a structured nutrition program that goes for a month before surgery to three months after surgery. And so the, the questions obviously are derivatives of the MUST score and the MST. Some of them are obviously the validated questions that we've been using for years to diagnose malnutrition. And then of course we added the albumin, which I know we'll talk more about later, um, because it's the most robust predictor, one of the most robust predictors of surgical mortality in the first 30 days, and has been highly associated with complication risk in many different operations in the NISQIP data. It's the number four predictor of risk of death within 30 days of any inpatient surgery. And this is two and a half million patient records. And it's the only modifiable risk factor in the top 10 causes of death on that list. And it's something that we as a nutrition community can make a difference in. Now, yes, it has its limitations, especially after patients are admitted to the hospital. And I know we'll talk more about that, but we felt very compelled that this was what surgeons across the room that we were sitting in said, this is the marker we go to when we want to screen for malnutrition. If we're going to send someone to a dietitian, it's most likely going to be their albumin that we're going to send them for. And so we thought we want more people to see dietitians and more people to be diagnosed with malnutrition when you have a dietitian in the room that can do this formally. And this is a way to get the at-risk people in the door. And so we tried to make a score that encompassed the needs of the surgeons the needs of those of us who practice nutrition for our life's work and embraces the data that exists for the pathways and screening scores we know to be validated in other areas. Paul, can you share with the audience the other components of the PONS score? Sure. So the first question that gets asked is BMI, which is, of course, very easy to obtain from the electronic medical record if it's in a screening tool or the patient's you know, weight and height can be asked. And so if the patient's BMI is less than 18 and a half at any age or less than 20 in the elderly, so we're trying to begin to get at sarcopenia now, right, and, and low muscle mass, which you know is a risk for surgery. That's the first question on the score. The second is the traditional, have you lost 10% or more of your body weight? 
in the recent three months. We often ask it as, have you lost 10 pounds or more in the last few months without trying to make it simple for our patients? That's the second question. Third question is the traditional, have you eaten less than half your normal meals in the last week to get at intake? And then the fourth question is, is your albumin less than three? The NISCRIP scores would actually say the albumin less than three and a half is a great cutoff, but we chose to be more conservative, again, given the limitations of albumin, make it less than three. I will tell you, we have got a validation paper of that scoring system predicting risk submitted to one of the big anesthesiology and perioperative medicine journals as we speak. It was quite valid. All four of those questions were quite valid predictors. Interestingly, having more than one of them didn't increase your risk, but anyone individually created significant risk of complication after surgery. And then the last point we hope to add is CT scan or ultrasound-based perhaps even BIA-based muscle mass. We hope that to become the fifth PONS criteria to give us an objective measure of muscle mass as a risk factor. Thanks. That's very interesting. Um, and we really definitely look forward to that paper. Maybe I can ask Dr. Evans and Dr. Martindale, do you use a nutrition screening tool in your institution? Do you use the PONS or do you use something else? And I think back to Dr. Wishmeyer is, I mean, I think the most important thing you're saying is you need a nutrition screening tool. Amen. If you don't use ponds, you need to be using something. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Well, um, I mean, a few years ago, uh, we had built the MST into our kind of standard oncology clinic intake, and we found that to be pretty useful. I mean, we often didn't have albumins until we were preparing for surgery. And in fact, albumin typically in Ohio has been combined with the LFTs. And so some patients may not get LFTs drawn or or an albumin drawn. So we were doing MST. I, I personally am a big believer in the PON score. I'm really excited to hear the validation papers coming out because that's really the one drawback is that I always had people saying, well, but that one's not validated. And so I'm really glad to hear, Paul, that we're going to be able to have that evidence. Thanks, Dave. I, I think it, it's crucial. So the paper's under review. Hope to be out soon. Yeah, we use a screening tool. Basically, it's a modification of what they've already been presented. A few questions, that sets them off into a screen. I do want to mention, we got to be very careful with albumin because all that data about mortality is based on all comers. As you know from the big studies, if we go just pre-op, I'm a firm believer in looking at everybody should have an albumin pre-op because that tells us where they are. The problem is if we measure albumin post-op and all the other big administrative databases go pre and post-op and everybody's post-op albumin is, is three. And if they take go back to the operating room, which sick people do, that means nothing. Those post-op albumins are useless for several weeks. So I think pre-op, that's a great tool, but post-op, it's a useless marker. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely a pre-op tool, not a post-op tool or yeah, I think tool or... A problem I find is our residents go, oh, no, we can't do anything. His albumin is 1.5. I go, yeah, well, he's had three operations in the last 48 hours. I mean, what do you expect? Or, you know, he crashed his motorcycle last night at 100 miles an hour, you know, yeah. and sure, his albumin is nothing because he got 25 units of blood last night and 10 liters of crystalloid, you know. You know, this damn anesthesiologist gave him too much fluid in the OR. One of the key things that we really need to emphasize through all of this is with, um, you know, and for example, the dietitians, we've really been for years saying, you know, don't look at these inpatient albumins, don't look at them in the ICU. They are negative acute phase reactant. But for the PONS tool, we really need to emphasize that this is elective surgery or, or semi-elective outpatient setting, not the ICU. And in that setting, you know, while it's maybe 
correlation rather than causation. You know, we've got years of strong evidence going back really to the 1970s and then being validated all the way to today in, you know, I guess what I would call the NISQIP era. Almost every different operation that you could think of, somebody has looked at this in, and it has been a really strong predictive tool for complications. You know, we, we need to realize that typically in these patients, it's not decreased due to starvation, but it's the disease-related inflammation. And so albumin is a strong indicator of that risk and helps us identify which patients would benefit from a nutrition intervention. So, you know, often in those patients, it's not just the nutrition intervention, but it's the fact that we're recommending in our guideline in the ACER 2018 publication that, you know, we take a pause, we send these patients to a dietitian, we reassess the situation, determine whether we, you know, are going to provide nutrition support as ONS or we need to step it up to enteral or even perenteral in select cases. And I can't emphasize enough that it needs to be a holistic approach. You know, in these patients, I'm often combining the protein or enteral nutrition or oral nutritional supplements with exercise. It's a holistic prehabilitation strategy. And so while nutrition is a big part of what these patients need, it's really saying this patient's high risk, their immune system is heat up, their muscle mass is down, they may have edema. All of these things are kind of secondary things that go along with low albumin, and we need to address those to get substantial improvement before surgery. Aspen, we actually are going to be publishing a recommendation or a statement about the selective, thoughtful use of albumin and pre-albumin in really in any clinical situation. And while I'm a strong believer still in it for pre-op for before surgery, you know, trying to put it in the context of what does it really mean, I hope people will find that that Aspen statement that's going to be coming out will be helpful to them. I'm going to give you one last provocative statement. We just published a paper last week. We have a young, um, Bob, I hope you'll be seeing her in the Nutrition Fellowship soon, a trauma surgeon, acute care surgeon who is pursuing nutrition now as a career. She just joined our TPN team, and she um, can program the NISQIP database program her own stats language. And she looked at a modified GLIM score. She took the, the, uh, the new Global Initiative on Malnutrition score, and we modified it for surgery, acute care surgery, and added albumin, the admission albumin, which you're right, is going to have limitations because it's hard to know exactly when that was drawn within the NISQIP database. But it was a significant predictor of mortality in acute care, large bowel and small bowel surgery at around 2.8 to threefold risk interestingly, of whatever that admission albumin was. And it's hard to say exactly what that means in the scope of the other markers and the other issues. But interestingly, it's a paper, if you're interested in modify, modifications of the GLIM score, perhaps for surgery, this paper just came out in clinical nutrition this last week. It's by Krista Haynes, who's a name I hope you hear a lot more of. She's a really phenomenal young trauma surgeon and acute care ICU surgeon, um, an intensivist who um, has become passionate about nutrition. And we're excited for that. Excellent discussion. I mean, that's exactly where I wanted to go. And thank you, Dr. Evans, for relating it to the papers that are coming out from Aspen. And I think that it's, that's a very important discussion about albumin. Dr. Evans, one of the recommendations in this paper is to stop feeding late pre-op and to restart early post-op. This requires a significant change in practice for many surgeons and institutions which require fasting after midnight preoperatively. How do we convince surgeons and anesthesia that this is a safe and beneficial practice change? This is the age-old question, and really the proof is in the outcomes. You know, the enhanced recovery protocols, numerous studies, you know, 
time after time show reduction in complication, reduction in infections, shorter length of stay. You know, usually it's about two days on average. Patients feel better. They report fewer symptoms, less nausea, less anxiety. Their pain control is often better. So the patients love it. Surgeons, I think, are really, we're pretty competitive with each other. You know, if I hear that Bob is doing something in Oregon, I want in on it. And so um, I think that, you know, if one doc in an institution starts doing something, they start doing a protocol, and the others around them see that their patients are going home sooner, that they feel better, that they're happier, they want in on it. I have so many examples of hospitals, mine included, where, you know, oftentimes it's the colorectal group because the evidence in this has been the strongest and they were earlier to the game. But you've got the colorectal group doing enhanced recovery, feeding their patients right up to the time of the OR, doing the clear liquids with the carbohydrate loading, and then the early oral feeding and getting better outcome, shorter length of stay. And so then, you know, the urologist, the gynecologist, orthopedics, neurosurgery, start looking around and say, we want in on that too. And so it's hard to get it started. It's hard to get the first step in the hospital. But once it does, it's like a spark went off in a room with gasoline. I mean, it just causes an explosion and everybody wants in on it. So, you know, in terms of anesthesiology, First of all, if I encounter a barrier there, I'm going to have my friend Paul call and talk to him, talk some sense into him. But we need to emphasize that the ASA guidelines really have been permitting clears up until two hours before surgery for years now. You know, they say that it often takes 18 years for a new idea, a new medical innovation to take hold and become standard practice. And I think we're really getting closer. You know, the two-hour clear recommendation, I mean, we're probably about 18 years on that. I think that, you know, in hospitals, if we can get teams together, break down the barriers and silos of care, get our multidisciplinary juices flowing, hold each other accountable and start tracking data. You know, as a trauma surgeon, you know, there's a long history there of performance improvement and process improvement. And really, we find that oftentimes it's hard to look at quality in terms of an outcome and make a change and on a day-to-day basis see changes in our outcomes. But if we start looking at processes like making sure that, you know, hey, we went from no one was getting carbohydrate loading to now 50% of patients are getting pre-op carbohydrate loading and then asking the question of why are the other 50% not and starting to look at those and working on that process, tracking that data month after month. That's kind of how it needs to be. We need to communicate and communicate some more. You know, I found out some of the nurses who called in our hospital, they would call the patients for the night before surgery. We forgot to tell them about carbohydrate loading. And so they were telling the patients, no, it's NPO at midnight. And so, you know, we really have to communicate across the whole institution. And I need to emphasize the patient education component of it too, which I already kind of alluded to. But You know, many of our patients are in that old way of thinking that, well, I'm going to have surgery, I'm going to be in the hospital, of course, I'm just going to eat chicken soup for a few days, you know, broth, that's what you do. And so they're really surprised when meal trays start showing up on day one, high protein supplements, you know, they're surprised when the physical therapist comes the day of surgery or the day after surgery and says, hey, it's time to go for a walk, because that's not how it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. These changes, some of them aren't new, but people's uh, expectations of hospitalization can be all over the place. They think it's an error that the food tray is showing up. So 
we need to educate our patients and the public that early feeding and early mobilization are best practices and that, you know, things may have changed from what their expectations were based on the movies or whatever. Thank you. I'm going to move on to the question about carbo loading because you brought it up and it's an important component. Do you have trouble convincing some of your colleagues and any of you can answer this, especially because of the large number of diabetics? And is it across the board that you recommend a pre-op carbo loading? Is there a need that it's a special product or can it be something that is just routinely available? So from an anesthesiologist point of view, just because often this begins to fall to us, well, I think it's what the surgeons say to their patients that play a huge role in this as well, because um, having been a surgery patient many times, I listen to my surgeons like the word of God. But I think a lot of the challenges that, uh, you know, that Bob and, and Dave face are, are from anesthesia, perhaps saying, you know, well, if you have them drink after midnight, we're going to cancel your case. And I think that that is really beginning to change in our specialty finally. And, and Dave was right. It takes a long time to change. You know, Duke was the first institution in the U.S. to implement ERAS years ago. So I'm in a bit of a biased situation because I came into a place where already, this was already standard of care. But I think now the data has gotten so strong that we know that, for instance, the Cochrane analysis shows you can reduce length of stay by a day and a half using the simple few dollar carb load drink. And I do want to emphasize, you know, given the vast experience here at Duke and our close relationships with people like Franco Carley, who studied extensively using different carb load drinks, that only the complex carbohydrate multidextran solution has been validated in the data to show benefit on outcome. And it in and of itself is the only one we as anesthesiologists really feel safe with or should feel safe with because it was developed to empty the stomach with the right osmolality and the right glucose makeup, actually complex carbohydrate makeup. Simple sugars don't have the right percentage carbohydrate. They empty the stomach more slowly, potentially. They don't have the right osmolality to be emptied. There's no data supporting their use. So using orange juice or a simple sugar, Gatorade or others, if there was an aspiration event, you wouldn't be able to defend yourself in any court because there's no data for their use and there's physiologic data to speak against them. The other piece, I'll, I'll throw two more pieces in that Franco's taught me. One is they have to be taken quickly over about five minutes to have the insulin effect that we want. And so if they're drunk over three hours, they don't work. So they can't be sipped. They have to be drunk quickly. And the last piece is amino acids, arginine, citrulline, and other things should not be added to them. It's very clear from Franco's work and from basic physiology that arginine, citrulline, and all those amino acids generate nitric oxide, which delay gastric emptying and are much more likely to lead to aspiration risk from what we can tell knowing the basic physiology. So I would discourage people from using things that don't exactly match the extensively studied data from the ERAS trials that were done in Europe. And that is a maltodextran complex carbohydrate solution that has nothing else in it. And it's 50 grams taken more than two hours before surgery, drunk over five to seven to 10 minutes, not, not drunk over a few hours. And so I think that's really critical. And then the diabetics, we are giving our type two diabetics at Duke, um, not all of them, but many of them um, are carp- um, complex carbohydrate loads. Um, we have a diabetes clinic as part of our perioperative optimization clinics. So we don't have a lot of elective surgery patients coming with grossly out of control type two diabetes. The type ones are more difficult. I'll be curious what my surgical colleagues say about the type ones, we haven't been giving them routinely as much, but our type twos in many cases we are. I would agree with that. We don't give our type one diabetics. We're cautious, we explain to them, but we also agree with you, Paul, 100% that there's this perception you can take any sugar load and we just can't. You gotta take something that's gonna be rapidly absorbed over time to give you that carbohydrate you need, not just simple sugars. 
I absolutely agree. And, you know, just to carry the type one point a step further, diabetes control in type one is, is a totally different animal. The, the much smaller, you know, those patients don't have insulin resistance. Typically, they're actually very sensitive to carbohydrate loads and then very sensitive to insulin treatment. And so I think you really run the risk of destabilizing their blood glucose control before surgery. I would not carbohydrate load them. I've even seen instances where the preoperative vancomycin packed in dextrose has caused severe hyperglycemia in type 1. So we just have to be ultra careful with those patients. I think the concept of what we used to give it the night before and morning of has sort of faded. As we know, the Leap Lobos group has got very good data saying all we need is a, the two-hour, two- or three-hour pre-op rapidly taken over a short time. We don't need the night before dose anymore. We used to have a concept that we're actually putting glucose into the muscle, the myocardium, and the liver as glycogen. That's not the case. We're now focusing on decreasing insulin resistance, which then allows carbohydrate to be utilized postoperatively or lowers insulin resistance, allowing us to use our fat stores better than we would normally, not immediately going to breaking down protein for gluconeogenic substrates. Excellent. Thank you very much. I love the discussion. And Dr. Martindale, I'd like to move on a little bit to talk about preoperative immunonutrition. You know, should it be used in all surgical patients or only those identified as malnourished? You know, is it more effective in certain patient groups such as GI cancers, orthopedic surgeries? We talked about colorectal cancer. Maybe you can give us some insights as to the evidence and the role of preoperative immunonutrition. Yeah, I think across the board, we've got data on major surgery, you know, a simple inguinal hernia or something certainly doesn't need it. You're eating that afternoon, if you whatever. But in general, the data primarily is in visceral surgery and GI cancers, although there is data in orthopedic, cardiac surgery, uh, spine surgery, neuro, neurosurgical intervention, all those have data for. But primarily, it's visceral surgery where the big databases are. And now the data is so overwhelming that not to use it is kind of goofy. Now, I think we, we have to look at two different focuses. One is pre-op. It, you, had, you mentioned malnourished versus non-malnourished. I think we're looking at two different things. If they're malnourished, we're looking at both immune modulation as well as protein delivery to protect the cell. If we're looking at a well-nourished patient, that patient still benefits because now we're talking about metabolic modulation. We lower the metabolic response to stress uh, with the fish oil loading, certainly helps. We've got overwhelming data in that area. So I think we're two different things, metabolic modulation as well as nutrition. And the pre-op healthy person doesn't need the nutrition so much, but they still benefit from the metabolic modulation. And that goes back as far as 2002 with uh, Marco Braga and uh, Luciano uh, Giannotti. Their paper in 2000, Gastroenterology, shows in only well-nourished patients, giving it to well-nourished patients shows significant benefit. So I think in the malnourished benefit, it showed before and after. But in the non-malnourished patients, just giving it before was a benefit. So I think it's two different things. But most of the data is in visceral surgery, although we have data, orthopedic, cardiac, spine, uh, and central nervous system surgery. Bob deserves a lot of credit. He really has led this charge for many years that it just has never made any sense that we aren't giving this routinely to all of our major elective surgical patients. And I think Bob really inspired many of the rest of us to come onto that story and really push it and things we say and do too. 
I mean, the literature is compelling, but it's it's fascinating. Even in the even in some of the discussions we have with other teams, there's still controversy here for whatever reason. I can tell you, Darren Island and I tried to take a study of this, a large, definitive New England Journal trial study of this to the NIH, and they said, "Why would we fund a trial that's already proven to be effective? Immune nutrition, unequivocally, in large, high impact study, high impact factor journals." reduces infection dramatically. You guys understand the mechanism. You understand the science. You know how to use it. Your clinical data is overwhelming. We would never fund this because we already know the answer. You just have to go out and implement it. And so we as a nutrition community really need to come together and unify our stance on the use of fundamental peri-operative nutrition in all patients coming for these major surgeries and it's always baffled me, and as, as I've heard Bob say many times, why that isn't happening. We still know that only a few percent of U.S. surgical patients are getting this. And I think these ERAS bundles are the opportune, unique opportune times to really drive home this should be fundamental practice. Yeah, I agree, Paul. I can tell you, I recently had my hip replaced, and they put me on an ERAS protocol, and I took my preoperative immunonutrition. I was right. actually delighted here. when I got all my pre-op instructions and ERAS was included, as well as with my pre-op carbohydrate drink. As opposed to Steve McClave, who had his hip replaced recently, and they did not give it to him. So they said, were you NPO after midnight? He said, of course, even though he, he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he just lied. They, he goes, what about this? They go, nah, that's a bunch of hogwash. But he did it anyway, did well. Yep. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We focus a lot on the preoperative period, but what about the postoperative period? Um, Dr. Evans, can you maybe review with us some of the key points for appropriate nutrition postoperatively and specifically the use of the traditional transition diets, a clear liquid diet to a full liquid diet, et cetera? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, early feeding is an absolute key. And, you know, we have older data looking at interval early feeding that clearly showed good outcomes and also data that shows that just reinitiating an oral diet in the early postoperative period, once again, same stuff, reduces complications, reduces infection, shorter length of stay, the whole thing. So, um, you know, one, one thing is the MMCs of the GI tract tend to pause. So basically motility goes on to a pause if the GI tract is not working effectively. And so, you know, really getting food in there early, even if it's small amounts, really keeps those MMCs contracting, keeps things moving. So early feeding truly reduces ileus. I think protein is really important too. I think clear liquid diets are really overutilized. We want to minimize the use of those clear liquid diets. You know, really in my mind, the indications for clear liquid diets are patients who are at extremely high risk of vomiting and maybe aren't protecting their airways. So think like the GI surgery and the PACU when they're still emerging from anesthesia, something like that. So basically not a clear liquid diet. Of course, if the patient's going to have general anesthesia in the next six to eight hours. Um, and then the final group is feeding patients where there's a very high risk of a leak in the foregut. So specifically like an esophagectomy, those patients still get clear liquid diets. But in my mind, really, we very few patients, almost none of my patients should ever get a clear liquid diet because protein is so important. If we're stuck on clears, it's hard to deliver that protein. So a few things about protein delivery. First of all, we need to divide the protein delivery, get it in throughout the day. 
typically three meals, 25 to 35 grams of protein per meal or even more frequent meals. But that's going to help enhance the utilization of the protein, enhance muscle synthesis, prevent shifts from a catabolic state. You know, I have too many patients where they really aren't eating through the day, but then they get a big dinner. They get 55 grams of protein in one setting. That's not the most effective way to be delivering it because they can't utilize it. One thing that I've seen some hospitals do, Carol Reesh Parish, University of Virginia, they published a nice article on enhanced recovery post-op diets. And they talk about what they, they call a transition diet or a tolerance diet. So these are basically think about what, what is going to be better tolerated. You know, so minimal grease, minimal uh, non-digestible fiber, emphasizing whey protein, making sure that things are relatively isoosmolar. So that's a nice article if, if somebody is looking for some more information on that. But basically avoiding, you know, a lot of the insoluble fibers, the raw vegetables, focusing on softer foods. And then certainly the easiest thing is the high protein nutritional supplement, putting those into these diets. That's an easy way of addressing it. That's great. Thank you. Um, Dr. Martindale, in your editorial, you actually highlighted some important approaches to nutritional management that the paper addresses that you felt very important. I think Dr. Evans has started to address them, but maybe you can highlight what you felt was so important. I think you hit it mainly, but I think the key is uh, I, I'm a strong believer that the, the surgeon involved needs to look the patient in the eye and tell them the importance. Because if they just hear on the way out that the nurse or the tech hands them a handout and said, oh, yeah, doctor, the doctor wants you to do this pre-op, that doesn't happen. So I think that's a big key. Let the patients understand this is a full team, the anesthesiology, the surgeons, they all believe this is beneficial and they should do it. I think the, the key that early feeding, if you tell them pre-op that they're going to get fed early, they start to understand better and expect it. They want to know why. I mean, as far as the clear liquid business, I think David's exactly right. I mean, it, it's crazy. We published a paper in 1996 that compared clear, liquid versus, clear liquids versus regular diet, and there was actually less emesis in the patients who got the regular diet. And then protein intake was 65 grams a day versus less than 10 grams a day. So I think the idea that clear liquid diet somehow protect you from leaking is ridiculous. And also, does it protect you from throwing up? No, you throw up just as much. There's no change there. There's no difference in aspiration risk. So I think we've, we've got to break that habit. So I think that's, generally speaking, uh, the people need to understand where everyone's on board, and they will then follow through. I think one of the points that was made in the papers and in your editorial was that the importance of protein versus calories. Do you guys have a protein guide that you would shoot for? Is it, you know, one gram per kilogram, 1.5, you know, or is it yeah. patient specific? Yeah, we give we give them a, a very strong education. They're, luckily, we have a dietitian in our clinic. When we're done with the pre-op stuff, the dietitian goes in and talks to them right then when they're still in the clinic. Uh, and we do, we, we break up, just like David said, we change the dietary regimen, you might say, and that we try to break the protein up for at least 25 to 30 grams four times a day. We tell them even before they go to bed at night, even like uh, six ounces of uh, Greek yogurt before they go to bed at night is 25 grams of protein, you know. So we try to break that up, explain to them that they need to exercise, resistance exercise after eating, 
uh, is a key. They got to get up and walk around. So those issues we really push and we really train them. I think the protein's a big catch. I'm not so worried about them getting more carbohydrates. I want to see them get the protein and get the lean body tissue support. Yeah, I think there's even studies now that are showing that, that just bumping with an oral nutrition supplement protein dose. There was an uh, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition paper that the Canadian ERAS group did that showed that getting in 60% or more proteins over the first three days after colorectal surgery reduced total length of stay by four and a half days. We're talking about a couple dollars of protein drinks here. It was literally about one to two protein drinks per day was the average increased intake in the experimental group four and a half days on their length of stay. And this is an ERAS program. I mean, I mean, the data is just unbelievably compelling. And the only other piece of data that I think really pushes us over the top is Ola Lindquist did a great job in a surgery paper he did in the World Journal of Surgery in 2016. He looked at 900 patients who got 70% or more of the ERAS components for GI oncology surgery. And he looked at their survival five years later. And they had significantly improved five-year survival by... 40% was the data. It was really stunning data based on just getting ERAS from the time of surgery. And the two components that made the biggest difference in that five-year mortality difference were feeding on day one of surgery and good fluid management in the orbit. Those are the two key components. But feeding was actually the most effective component in the group. And so I can't emphasize enough to people how important it is to feed your patients day one with a protein intervention. It changes their outcomes, it appears, years later. And then I can't agree more with what Bob just said. When it comes from the surgeon, it carries the most weight. And so to all our surgical colleagues out there, you really hold a crucial key. I mean, when a surgeon tells me or anyone else as a patient to do something, it gets done more so than any of the rest of us on the team. I mean, clearly the rest of us on the team have to support that and make sure it's able to happen and support that pathway. But boy, our surgical colleagues, we really need you. Excellent. Thank you very much. We've talked about the improvement in outcomes, and I mean, the comments that are actually made in the paper is that Evans shows that malnourished patients are three times more likely to have complications at the time of surgery and five times more likely to die compared to well-nourished patients. Both articles also highlight the cost savings associated with malnutrition. But the thing that really sat poorly with me is that one in five institutions in the U.S. have a preoperative screening program. Despite the majority of surgeons, and I think it was 82 or 83 percent of surgeons recognizing that nutrition will reduce complications. So what is stopping people from implementing such a program? And what can Aspen do to help implement this practice? I mean, Dr. Evans said, you know, it takes 18 years to change stuff. We're kind of at the 18 years. My comment always is we don't have 18 years. So, you know, how can we work with you to make this change? I think, Pat, you know, I've been looking at this for 30 years. How do we get people? I mean, literally 30 years. I remember the early days of immune modulation that the fish oil would come out of solution and people wouldn't drink it because it smelled like fish, but their cats loved it, you know? So the, I think the key to that is we've got to get the logistics issues down. I mean, I moved here in 2005 to Oregon. I brought with me a pocket full of protocols and pre-op things that took me years to get implemented in Georgia where I was before here. I got here and it took me two years as the chief of general surgery. It took me two years to get my colleagues to implement this. And now you'd think that was, uh, they would say, you've got to be kidding me. You're not doing this. So now they all believe it. But it takes a while and change. They've got to 
show them data. The data is there now, as Paul has shown us, some data. It's unbelievable. We just got to push it now. We're on the edge where everybody's saying, how do we decrease length of stay? How do we decrease cost of care? We've got data in humans that show the data, show them now we can decrease length of stay, decrease cost of care, decrease the number of complications across the board. There is no downside. It's inexpensive. We just got to get the people to do it. The problem is logistics. Today's medicine is they're seen by a surgeon in a clinic somewhere, not attached to the hospital in many cases, you know, and they're told, okay, day of surgery, we want you to do this, this, and this. And it never gets connected when the patient shows up in the whole process. It's got to be one, two, three, four, five. Everybody's got to be right in line. The pre-op people do it, the peri-op people do it, and the post-op people do it. And I think that's what Paul's group at Duke is now showing. We've got to have everybody aligned. And I think that's our biggest problem still. I mean, we tell everybody esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, or pancreatic surgery, esophageal surgery, all of them now get a pre-op protocol. When they get to the hospital, they're plugged into that protocol. It's not like two different teams. You know, I think that's the key, getting everybody working off the same sheet of music and working together. That's the problem. I see it anyway. I was just going to emphasize, yeah, I mean, I think... The idea that we have a periop nutrition process, like Bob said, is so essential. And that's what we've really striven for at Duke. And you asked what Aspen could do. I mean, I think there's a real opportunity to put together a toolkit here where you take well-working systems and these, some of these unique processes that we've built, Bob has built, myself has built, or Dave has built, or others, and you put the dietitians and the other medical leaders into that group and have them build a toolkit for other institutions to do you know, I, I have a dietitian, Liz, um, who's our periop dietitian, and that's all she does all day is see these people referred a month before surgery for their colorectal, for their pancreatic, for their large orthopedic, whatever it is. You know, when they have a PON score positive hit on their phone screen or in their pre-op um, surgical visit, um, and it can't be the day before surgery, it needs to be when they see their surgeon or when they're screened way back before they go to her, they see her, and she puts them on a process and she calls them every week. An example of this is, I saw a patient yesterday at Duke, gentleman who she'd been working with, he's a colorectal tumor, and she's had him on, uh, he's lost a bunch of weight, he's just case he's had him on uh, the oral nutrition supplements for three weeks, and over the last two weeks, he hasn't been able to drink them, he's getting obstructed. And so she caught that, she caught that he lost five kilos over two weeks, even on the ONS because he couldn't drink it, came in the hospital yesterday, we started him on TPN for two weeks before his surgery, because Otherwise, this guy, we'd had no idea he was losing weight. He'd have shown up on the day of surgery having lost 10 kilos. We'd have thought he was fine. This guy would have had a disastrous set of operative complications. This is what the pathway can do. And and I'm going to share some little sneak peek of this data. We haven't written this up yet, but we took the first 125 patients that our dietitian saw before we started our QI project where we send them the supplements for free. Just the presence of a surgical patient seeing a dietitian in the preoperative period, reduced length of stay by more than a day, reduced ICU length of stay, mortality index, readmission, AFib, AKI, and myocardial infarction rates hmm. significantly. Just the presence of a dietitian seeing the patient. If that doesn't motivate Aspen and our teams, the dietitians that make up a lot of our society who are really the frontline providers here, boy, that, that's gonna motivate some hospital administrators, we think, and give dietitians a real fighting chance to be in this game to change these outcomes. I mean, this, that patient I saw yesterday in my mind was, this is the fruition of this kind of work. This guy would have never been caught if this RD isn't calling him every week 
and catches a few days ago that he dropped five kilos in two to 10 days, two weeks, because he can't drink anything, can't eat anything. He's obstructed, he's distended. I saw him yesterday for the exam. He's, there's no way this guy's drinking. She's, she may have saved his life. And uh, that's how these pathways have to work. And, and Bob's right. It takes time, but Aspen could build a toolkit where we take these dietitians that are experienced and then we as physicians that are experienced, we could do this. We're ready. Dr. Evans, do you have anything? I know that you've changed institutions in the last couple of years. You may have some experience in trying to build a program like Dr. Martindale talked about. Well, absolutely. And actually, I'm thinking about how am I going to build my program now? Because I've really only been at my hospital grant medical center for two months. So I know many of our listeners today, they're not surgeons, they're nutrition professionals. And I think when you're looking at this topic, one of the key things is to look around at the environment. Who in your hospital is high volume, obviously dedicated to quality, a smaller group where there's already a team in place? I think if you take a catch-all approach to this, that's going to be hard. But look around and find you know, maybe a group of two or three surgeons who do something that's somewhat repetitive, somewhat measurable, and see if you can engage them and start with that. You know, if you try to catch all the surgery, all the surgeons, the one-offs, the, you know, surgeon who comes in once a month to do one case, that's going to be hard. But if you choose, you know, a core group, a lot of hospitals, it might actually be like an orthopedic joint surgeon or something like that. Somebody where they're just turning over the same few operations every day. And, you know, see if you can get embedded in that group and start implementing these protocols there. And then from there, you know, a lot of places it might be um, cardiothoracic surgery too, you know, someplace where there's kind of already a team or a center of excellence and then start spreading it out from there. I mean, I, like I mentioned earlier, it really does kind of almost spread like a wildfire once it works in one department. Excellent. This has been a fabulous discussion. I think we could continue for about two more hours and not be there, but I think we've offered our listeners a great deal of information and I hope stimulated their interest in reading the papers, learning more about this topic and actually working to try to implement such programs in their institutions. Um, Aspen is working on materials and they're actually, within the next year, we will have ERAS nutrition guidelines published. So with that, I would like to thank you Thanks, Dr. Wishmeyer, Evans, and Martindale for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I invite our listeners to find out more about this topic and many others by going to the Malnutrition Awareness Week webpage at www.nutritioncare.org backslash MAW. Please also listen to the two other podcasts on the ERAS topic, which are available on this Aspen podcast. And before concluding, it is important that I thank Abbott for their support of this podcast. Thank you to all, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.